Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Breaking Down the Doors. I'm your host, Mike Organ, alongside Vanderbilt beat writer, Adam Sparks. Vanderbilt stays an unusual home opener during an unusual year. Only students were allowed to, or were admitted to last week's game against LSU. That meant no other fans or even fan, players' families could be at the game. Was Vanderbilt too cautious, or is that even possible during the COVID-19 pandemic? Plus, we look ahead to the Commodores' second home game against South Carolina. So, Adam, what was it like to be in Vanderbilt Stadium for the first home game? Well, I mean, I think the word weird is uh, almost overused at this uh, during this year, but it was weird. It was odd. You know, the press box was spread out where we were about 10 feet apart. Up How many of you were in the press box? Yeah. Were you in the press box? You covered MTSU, right? Yeah, I was in MTSU, yes. So how many, how many uh, media were allowed in the press box? Uh, Ten reporters total, so five local media reporters and uh, five LSU reporters. I think that's probably going to be the standard, at least for the first few home games. And that was to keep everybody spread out. And uh, I made the cut first game. Hopefully I make the cut <laughs> the second game. But you know, it was it was it was weirder looking out at the stadium. So, for those that don't know, and I imagine just about everybody knows is listening to a Vanderbilt podcast. But uh, no fans were allowed in the stadium for the home opener, Vandy against LSU. Um, only students, and only a limited number of students. Now, I I ballpark this at maybe I don't know a few hundred. Like I'd say. 800 students maybe. I don't think it was a thousand, but maybe close to that. It's a pretty good group for, for Vandy students because they usually don't uh, have very many students come out, but they announced it 2,000 even <laughs> the attendance. I don't. I, I covered the MTSU game Saturday and I guessed it at about uh, a total attendance of about uh, 1,800 to 2,000 and they announced uh, 6,500. Well, there you go. I mean, there's a there's a there's a multiplier there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody, and you know, usually they use you know a ticket sold or season tickets plus butts and seats that sort of thing. I don't know if you yeah. can count that in a pandemic year, but I suppose you can count it however you want. Um, but the uh, what what was uh, you know so what we knew was going to be odd because Vandy chose to only have students, uh, and that means players' families couldn't even be there. But the sight of it and how they pulled it off, I think, added another uh, layer of, of weirdness to it. Um, they had – so they had students in what normally would be their student section. So it goes basically from about the goal line on the visiting side to around to the goal line of the other side. So basically they're in the end zone, the, the, the end zone stands. That's where the students are. They were all over there. The, the 50-yard line uh, on the – LSU side had cardboard cutouts. I thought this was creative because they had they had all the national title winners. So 
baseball players, uh, uh, ten- tennis, bowling, all the national title winners from the past at Vandy, they all had a cardboard cutout, each each athlete. So they did that. That would have been, been a capacity crowd for Alabama. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It would have been. Put all the football players in there. Um, <laughs> so, but, so what was weird is you – okay, you only have a few, a few people that can come in, students, and then they all put them on one side. Now, why? So, you know, you could, the, the, the place holds 40,000 people, so you could have spread them out across the whole stadium. Now, I suspect they didn't do that, number one, because they didn't want them, you know, near the players. If you have them behind the, the benches, you're potentially – you know, putting them close to LSU and Vanderbilt players. Of course, you could rid that, but just by saying nobody within the first 10 rows, maybe they just did it because that's what they're familiar with to keep everybody in the student section because it's only students. But it was an odd sight when you're socially distancing and then you have a a big 40,000 seat stadium and you let people in and then have them all contained in essentially one fourth of the stadium it was a weird look, you know, so, so kind of the question we're asking in this podcast, did they, were they too restrictive? Did they go a little too far? I'll say, I don't know that I'm prepared to say that Vandy was too cautious. Number one, it's a private school. Nobody knows a hundred percent how to handle COVID. So it's kind of say, it's kind of hard to say somebody is, is too cautious. Uh, Six months from now, we may know something that we don't know now about what what indicates what was or wasn't too cautious. I will say this. I'll say they were slightly too cautious in that I thought they should have let players' families in the stadium. I mean, yeah. I mean, Mike, you were covering another game, but when I told you no fans, it seemed like you weren't shocked. But when I told you no players' families in the game, that, that was a little bit surprising, right? Yeah. I mean, what are you talking about? 150 more people if all of them show up. And, and they're all not going to show up. So what's another 150 people? Uh, you know, I mean, especially in a stadium that size, if we're talking about a, a small basketball gym, okay, I understand it. Uh, even a smaller football stadium, a high school stadium, maybe I understand that. But a 40,000-seat stadium for another 150 fans for the home team and uh, definitely the uh, visiting team wouldn't have brought all its parents, uh, another 50 there, 200 people. Yeah, and this, and this uh, you know, was highlighted uh, quite a bit by the fact that Ken Seals, the freshman quarterback, his family was on the eighth floor of the Marriott, which anybody knows Vanderbilt Stadium, the Marriott overlooks uh, the stadium. They had, like, Christmas lights up to kind of let him know where they were and show their support. And uh, people, uh, other people were also in the Marriott. Uh, we had photos of people that were watching the game from the Marriott windows, not just the Seals family. And then you had a number of both Vanderbilt and LSU fans that were up on the parking garage that overlooks part of Vanderbilt Stadium. So I understand Vanderbilt's stance that um, they are liable for who they allow into their stadium. So if you want to be careful, and Vandy is trying to be really careful, and there's a you know, uh, globally acclaimed medical center there, and they want to do their part and, pro- and I think be above what they think the rest of the SEC's protocols are. And that's fine. That's, that's their choice. But th- the idea of not letting players' families in, I thought was kind of a half step too far, especially when I saw how they, how they arranged it. Like I mentioned before, they have students all on one-fourth of the stadium. 
will open up a gate on the other side of the stadium and let yeah. the yeah, 100, 200, whatever parents in and have them sit on the opposite end zone. Yeah. They are, I'm told this, Mike, I'm told this, this is a source told me that from one end zone to the other end zone is a hundred yards. That's what, that's the, that's, that's what a source told me. Uh, in, in end zones, you're even more than that. Right. So, so yeah. you can, socially, that's, more than, that's more than six feet, correct? Right. That's right. That's more than six. It's more than 10, more than 30. I thought that's something they could do. As we record this, Vandy has not made any, uh, any changes to its policy for the for this Saturday South Carolina game? How much blowback have you heard, uh, Adam, from opposing teams, uh, fan base, or teams, or uh, the, within the program that they can't come to the, these games because they can come to every other SEC game? There's a reasonable <laughs> amount of understanding, I think, with a lot of this. I think opposing fan bases, kind of from what I've seen on social media and elsewhere, there's more of a confusion. You know, what do you, what do you mean no fans, just mm-hmm. students? But again, I think most people kind of take it that Vandy will be more cautious or restrictive with this than, than other schools. So it's not a big shock. Again, the players' families part was, was, was the bigger surprise. And, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of fans from opposing teams to get in anywhere. I do think some opposing fans have looked at it and said, hey, Vanderbilt would be your chance to get into a game because it's also restrictive at everybody else's place. So – you know, only a handful of people, season ticket holders, can get tickets at, at um, other schools. And, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, Georgia's been ripped this week for their student section not being socially distanced and not wearing masks and all that. I will say, for whatever you feel about what Vanderbilt wanted to do, um, they did successfully pull it off. Students were in masks at the game. You know, we even had several photos taken. We had a few that would pose with their mask off when they were like far, far away or when they were one of the first students that arrived there. But students wore masks during the games. People asked me about socially distancing. They were in clusters. So if you saw a side angle, it looked like the student section was full, but it was actually just in clusters of like four or five people sitting together and there was space between them. Um, the, The reason that Vandy chose to go students first is that they test students every week on their campus. I'm not real sure how many universities in the country, much less the SEC, does that. They have, a lot of them have random testing, but not every single student every week. So well, their idea was this is sort of their version of a bubble. And I can respect that. Enrollment can allow for that. I mean, right? I mean, 4,000. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yes. Small enrollment. You can't do that at what Texas A&M is like 70,000 kids or something <laughs> like that, right? You can't do that. But I respect the fact that Vandy uh, wanted to only let in for the first game people that they could control, so to speak, the to some extent, because they are tested. Their idea was let's not let anybody in from the outside just yet. Okay, you did that. It went fine. Let let parents in. Let yeah. families in. And may, maybe by the time this thing uh, – is published this podcast, maybe that changes. But every indication that I've gotten is that most likely at this point, and we're doing this on Tuesday afternoon, is that it's it it may be tweaked to just allow more students in, but but maybe no one else. I'd I'd like to see players' families get in and be on the you know on the opposite end zone. That's fine. What was what, what is that going to hurt? That's an expensive ticket to have to. Uh stay in a hotel and get and request that side of the stadium uh, for your room. Uh, 
So I'm with you on allowing some uh, some parents in so they don't have to, to do that. I mean, they're probably in a hotel anyway somewhere in Nashville, but probably maybe not as expensive as the Marriott. No, not the Marriott. And I don't know, Mar- Marriott may pick up on what parents are doing <laughs> and jack up those prices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, but that, that, that's how the, the things are going in the stands. Let, let's talk about this game. And, you know, I think I said this on the podcast last week is that we learn a lot about what a team is between the first game and the second game. First game, Vandy was very competitive. They lost 17-12 to A&M. And then we said, okay, they've got to expand on that on both sides of the ball. Show me a little more and show me in game two if you're going to be competitive in these SEC games or if that was just – you know, the best you had in the opener, and it's going to kind of go backwards from here. I mean, I would lean toward the latter in what we saw in the second game because they lost 41-7 to to LSU. Now, I will say there's some, there's some decent reasons for that that, are, that could be aided a little bit this week. Uh, Derek Mason gave an injury report on some guys that are going to be back. Now, keep in mind what they lacked a lot in the LSU game was helping the secondary. Secondary played poorly, gave up 337 passing yards, four touchdowns. And then on offense, they just were not dynamic. Sluggish, they pick up some yards, but no big plays, that sort of thing. Well, both of those could maybe be helped a little bit by who they're getting back. They'll get back uh, on offensive side. Keon Brooks, running back, was going to compete for the starting job. Was Keon, uh, Keyshawn Vaughn's backup last year. They'll get him in the mix. That'll give them another running back. They get uh, back uh, Devin Body and James Bostic. Those are both wide receivers. Uh, also, Amir Abdur-Rahman, who had a really good game in the first game. He, was, he had a nagging injury in the second game. He's back to full health, according to Derek Mason. And Tyrell Alexander, another role player wide receiver, he's back to full health after having a nagging injury in this, uh, in this past game. But Brooks, Body, and Bostic could really help them because, you know, Body is a guy from Memphis, Whitehaven. He is an all-purpose guy, runner, receiver, could give them a deep threat, could give, them a, could give them a guy that can run some reverses, really dynamic guy, and they've lacked that to some extent. Um, he didn't play last year. They never got him in. I think he could give them a little bit of spark this year, at least in a, in a limited role. James Bostic is a 6'3", 6'4", target. Give, gives uh, gives um, Ken Seals a big target to throw to. They could use a lot of help in the receiving core just because they need more bodies. And they, they need to be able to allow Todd Fitch, the offensive coordinator, to have more personnel packages and be able to stretch that a little bit. And getting back to those guys, I think, will help a bunch uh, on offense. I heard uh, – I listened to Derek Mason's uh, press conference this morning, and just on what you just said, as much as getting those guys back as uh, as key players, he talked about the depth that he thought uh, it really hurt uh, the latter stages of the game Saturday when they their players started to wear down. And, of course, LSU's got – can go to the, you know, the number – the twos and the threes. Yeah, they're just, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a, uh, two different problems there. You know, it's the, it's the depth of guys getting worn down in the second half, uh, just having a, a, you know, a thin depth chart. And then it's the other side of it about just not having options. You yeah. know, at running back, you've got uh, Javion Marlowe, who's kind of a quick north-south, one-cut guy, 
You've got Jamari Wakefield. He's kind of a power back between the tackles. They need another element there. And I don't even know if Keon Brooks can give them another element, but he gives them at least another option to go to, to say, hey, maybe he's got something the other two guys don't. And in the receiving core, you know, they've, they've successfully used Ben Bresnahan, the, the tight end, in, this, in these first couple of games. But they've had to go, I think, a little heavier tight end and dig – dig not so deep into the receiving court because they just haven't had the options. One thing Todd Fitch loved to do at Louisiana Tech is that he loved to use a lot of different personnel packages and be able to put guys in different spots with with smaller roles but more guys. And by getting body on the field and getting Bostic out back out there, um, it gives him at least more options to where he's not he's not limited. I think that could help them offensively. Defensively, um, Brendan Harris, a safety who was one of their better defensive backs last year, is fourth on the team in tackles. He has not played yet this year because of an injury, and uh, Jalen Mahoney, a corner, played in the first game, had a fumble recovery, had a pass breakup. He was out this last game because of an injury. They're both back this game. So, Again, defensively, what hurt them in this past game, one of the one of the things defensively that hurt them was uh, poor secondary play, poor plays on the ball. They'll get back a corner, and they'll get a safety. And with those two guys, I, you know, they're going to have a little more depth on that side of the ball. And, they, I mean, this is well-timed because you know, South Carolina is a 12-point favorite in this one, but, you know, they're not, they're not world beaters. They're, they're, they're 0-2. They played Florida a good half. Um, they played Tennessee, a pretty tight game, had a chance to win that one. Um, but South Carolina is gettable if Vandy plays really well. But really well hasn't happened in a full game yet. The closest Vandy got was in that opener when they had probably a good half, maybe three quarters. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I didn't get to see the LSU game uh, except for probably the last quarter and a half. Was there ever a point where you thought – Vanderbilt could win the game uh, at any point in the first quarter. Did you think they could hang with LSU uh, at any point, maybe into the second quarter? Yeah, I mean, there was a chance there. Um, you know, Vandy was down uh, 14, I think it was, in the second quarter. They had already had a little bit of success on offense. They had a touchdown drive. They had a couple of good stops on defense. They had flip field position. And then they were driving at the end of the first half to a chance, I think, to cut it to seven if they would have scored a touchdown. Couldn't punch it in, had a couple of mistakes, and then had a field goal, which would have cut it, I think, to 10 and missed a 22-yard field goal, which, you know, even at a bad angle, you cannot miss a, a chip shot like that. Um, Pearson Cook is their is their kicker. He's one for three right now. Derek Mason said today that Javin Rice, their other kicker, to this point, is not going to get a chance. They're going to stick with Cook. They think he's, they think his, uh, his, uh, his fundamentals, his footwork, and his his form need to be cleaned up a little bit. But they, they like his potential. But you can't miss a 22-yard field goal. That point, I thought if they would have gotten a touchdown out of that drive late in the second quarter, they were they were going to hang for a while, at least well into the third quarter. You get an opportunity like that uh, and don't cash in, especially with a touchdown. It's uh, it's just not going to happen for you. I like how they competed for about a half. They just, they just didn't have it. They've got to find more options on offense. The, you know, the kind of plodding along, and I wrote, I wrote about this this week in the Tennessee, and the, the plodding along ground game of, 
three yards, four yards, hope, yeah. to, con hope to convert. Maybe you do convert another three yards. That'll get you so far. It'll certainly get you time of possession, which has been a big positive in the first two games. They've been really good time of possession. They've been pretty good on third down. They've, they've extended drives. They could not do that last year. There were a lot of three and outs last year. But at some point, you've got to have big plays, and, and you've, got, you've got to get some chunks, and you've got to score touchdowns. You can't – you know, you can't that, – that, that, would, that would work 80 years ago, you know, when you're trying to play for field position and you're in a punting game, you know, in, in uh, helmetless, <laughs> face maskless <laughs> games. That, that's not going to work in the SEC, and it's not going to work against South Carolina. That's got a reasonably decent uh, offense. That, they'll score some points. Yeah, and to the other extreme, though, in the second half, uh, Vanderbilt is fortunate enough to to stop LSU twice on its first two drives. It could have been worse, a lot worse than it was if those had resulted in touchdowns. It would have gotten out of hand a whole lot quicker than it did. Yeah, I mean, you know, Vandy's kind of on the – they're on a razor's edge right now of which way they can go. Uh, you know, we see they're good and we see they're bad right now. And – the you know I, I often do this with Vanderbilt early in the season because at this point we've seen a little bit of good and and, and quite a bit of bad. They have they have an offense that if they can find a couple of playmakers, if those are, guys are even on the roster, maybe that's Keon Brooks, maybe that's Devin Body, or maybe that's just other guys stepping up uh, in a larger role. If they have those guys on offense. There's the potential for this to be a solid offense. Ken Seals, the quarterback, is, is growing steadily. He's got to cut down on, on red zone mistakes. But I think there's potential there. Offensive line has been better than I thought it'd be. They've just got to have some dynamic plays. If they get that, they're a decent offense. If they don't get that, this is what they were last year, which is a, an offense that's just not going to score double digits some games, and you're not going to beat anybody. The razor's edge on the defensive side is – that there's a couple of guys, Dio Dangbo and Andre Mintz, that are legitimate high-end SEC pass rushers, potentially. They've got to be better in the secondary. They've got to be better tackling. They were good in the first game. They were bad in the second game. They've got to be consistent on that side of the ball and a lot of the fundamental things. And it's, it's a lot of boxes that have to be checked. And if you can check, you know – 10, 10 out of 10 of those boxes, they're going to win a couple of games in, by midseason. If you check seven of those 10 boxes, you have a chance to win a game. If you're not checking that many, then you're going to get blown out like they were Saturday, and they're going to get beat by double digits by South Carolina. They just, they've got a, a small margin for error, and they've got a hit on all these things. All right, speaking of South Carolina – Gamecocks have won 11 straight over Vanderbilt. What's your prediction for the Saturday? Um, it's a 12-point line at this point, South Carolina. Um, you know, I was telling you before we came on the podcast, I, I may pick Vandy to win. Now, I am backing up from that because I love history uh, in all aspects of my life. And the fact that South Carolina has won 11 straight with different coaches against different coaches – I mean, they beat Bobby Johnson. They beat James Franklin. They beat Derek Mason. Uh, Will Muschamp's got a 7-1 and one record at two different schools against Vandy. History tells me South Carolina is going to win this one also. That being said, I, f I feel good about Vandy right now and what they're going to do. I see a bounce-back performance. I'm just not picking them to bounce back far enough to win. So I think Vandy covers. I think Vandy's got a chance to win this one. 
Uh, but I'm going to pick South Carolina 27, Vandy 24. So the Gamecocks win by field goal. Okay. Well, uh, and I'm like you. I think this is a winnable game uh, for Vanderbilt. But I also think that South Carolina is very hungry because of your assessment uh, when you talked about it and you talked about what they had done in the first two games, which has left them extremely hungry. And at a point of desperation, they need this win. A loss uh, this week uh, does it for South Carolina uh, for their season. Of course, it does it for Vanderbilt, too, but Vanderbilt's more used to it than South Carolina. I'm going to play it safe, too, but not quite as safe as you. I'm going to take South Carolina 24 to 14. Okay, that does it for this edition of Breaking Down the Doors. We hope you'll subscribe to Tennessean.com if you haven't already. And remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drop us a review and a rating while you're at it. For Adam Sparks, I'm Mike Organ. Thank you for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.